For more than 40 years, George Willis has been producing erudite political commentary on a wide range of issues. I usually find his arguments persuasive. When I don't, I have to rack my brains to figure out why not and what arguments could possibly stand up to his. He's recently published The Conservative Sensibility, no subtitle, a 538-page reflection on Western political philosophy and tradition and the specifically American vision of the founders. I'm excited that he's joining us today. I'm Cliff May, and I'm excited that you're joining us too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. George, again, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Your book covers a lot of ground. Uh, we'll mostly talk foreign policy today because that's uh, our subject, but I'm not opposed to a little di- bit of digression. Start with this question, though. If you had written this book, say, 30 years ago, would it have been a very different book? It would have been somewhat different because uh, 30 years ago, I had not yet made the biggest mistake of my public writing career, which was to not see instantly. I saw fairly quickly, but not in in time, the folly of invading Iraq, Hmm. which I think is the most uh, dangerous costly foreign policy mistake in American history, which I believe partly because I think we've only paid 20% of the costs that will eventually be paid for that. Just let's, let's, let's talk about that for a moment because that the invasion of Iraq and the decision to overthrow Saddam Hussein was based on what was known at that time. Now, there were a couple of things that were believed and I'm I'm not among those who say, oh no no, the Bush Cheney they lied to us. I don't think they lied to us. I agree that they, did not. they did not. They believe that there are weapons of mass destruction being developed by Saddam Hussein. There's another part of it as well that you might want to reflect on, and that is after 9/11 in particular, we thought we were fighting a war against terrorism. I would argue, and I think I thought that at the time. I don't think I think that now. I think terrorism is a weapon used by our enemies, but it's not what we're fighting any more than we fought U-boats. It wasn't a war against U-boats in World War I, right? So you're thinking, well, we're fighting a war against terrorism. Saddam Hussein supports terrorism. He's a threat to the U.S. We think he's developing weapons of mass destruction. Let's go in there and get rid of him. Is that a crazy way to think? No. What was not crazy but imprudent, kind of fault of mine, was not to say, ask the question, and then what? Uh, it's a wonderful story, and it's a true story, that uh, in the 1940-41, uh, the Japanese government summoned Admiral Yamamoto and said, can you take a fleet stealthily across the North Pacific and deliver a devastating blow against the U.S. Navy in Hawaii? And Yamamoto said, yeah, I can do that. Devise me, devise me some shallow running torpedoes and all the rest, but I can do that. He says, and then I will run wild in the Pacific for six months, maybe a year. But then what? Mm -hmm. Yamamoto 
more far-sighted than I about these things, said, what we will have on our hands then is an enraged continental industrial superpower. Then what? Mm-hmm. Uh, what I did not uh, sufficiently think through was what happens after you topple Saddam Hussein. Uh, there was a, a, a breezy assumption on the part of Don Rumsfeld and some others that you topple him, that into the vacuum would flow. What? Democracy? Where was the infrastructure of democracy? What what uh, your group worries about, you exist to worry about this, is the it, the ecology of democracy, the institutional infrastructure, and that was just not there. I'm going to come back to that. But just for, for, for the fun of it, let's suppose Rumsfeld had said, we're going to get rid of Saddam Hussein. He's America's enemy. Uh, he's a danger to us. That's what we're going to do. And I've identified a, a general, um, and we're going to be in communication with him shortly. And we're going to say to him, you're now in charge. Do not make us come back. Would that have worked better? <laughs> no. No. Uh, we had no appreciation of the complexities of the ethnic and sectarian uh, fragmentation of the, the Iraqi society, which had been held together uh, by Saddam's gruesome authoritarianism, much as Yugoslavia was for many years held together by Tito's much less less grotesque authoritarianism. Take that away and all hell breaks loose. Okay, we're going to one or two more questions on this sure. and then I'll move on because – OK. We got in there knocking off Saddam Hussein. That was not very difficult. Then we got into a very difficult period because we didn't – for one thing, we disbanded the military. So all the military duties were now ours and well, there were a yeah, lot so of – Disbanding the military, we sort of unemployed 300,000 <laughs> – Armed, trained to fight, restless young men. This was a really bad idea. That was probably a really bad idea. Um, and we didn't understand that at first. Eventually we did. We didn't do much about it, that there were going to be Shia militias controlled by Iran that were going to come in, that uh, Assad in Syria was going to let in uh, various Sunni troops, that uh, Al-Qaeda was going to establish Al-Qaeda in Mesopotamia to fight with us. All that went very badly. Eventually, Petraeus came in. There was a surge. A lot of people thought the surge couldn't possibly work. A lot of people would say the surge worked very well. And then there were those who would argue, and I think they have a, a, some justification, you may not, that we were doing pretty well at that point. People were voting. People were sticking their fingers into purple ink to show they were they cared. They voted. We had a, about uh, we had a small military force there. We were the honest broker among Kurds, Shia, and Sunni. We had learned a lot. Things were going rather well. I guess I would argue that the next, certainly the next biggest mistake, if not the biggest, was 2011 when President Obama says. We've done a lot of good there. We don't need to be there anymore. Joe Biden says this is one of the great achievements of my administration, the Obama-Biden administration. We're pulling out all our troops. At that point, both al-Qaeda, what's left of it becomes the Islamic State. And the Iranians say, thank you. You've just put a welcome mat at at force. And we will walk on that welcome mat because we want Iraq. We want Syria. We want Lebanon. We want Afghanistan. We want the Middle East. And you're abandoning it. Thank you. We'll take it. And it all devolved from there. Do you disagree with that? I don't disagree with your uh, statement that it did devolve from there. What I'm not convinced of is if we hadn't made those decisions that you consider a mistake and that by what followed were a mistake, what would have, what would have happened? Would we, had we solved the problem, had we really solved a problem 
can we say we had solved the problem if, when we left, the problem immediately reappeared with a certain virulence? And I promise this will be the last, but I'll probably be on this. What if we had said, look, after World War II, it was necessary that we stay in Germany for a while. A while has lasted till now. After the war at World War II, we thought we better stay in Japan for a while. We're still there. After the Korean War, we thought we better stay there for a while. We're there. What if this was built? We were building the biggest embassy in the world. What if we said we are going to have to stay here for a very long time? We don't know how long, but it's the only way we are going to defeat uh, radical Islam, if you want to call it that, Islamism, jihadism, whatever the best term is, and we're going to create Iraq, the model. It, this We will make this state work, and if we do, it'll transform the region. Obviously, Obama said, well, I, I don't have any belief in that idea. Well, three problems with what you've just said. The first is, uh, if you're going to take the American people into an adventure that's going to last 50, 60, 70 years, tell them so at the outset. Second, uh, Germany and Japan had been uh, developed, modern, socially homogenous, and even harmonious societies. And they were utterly defeated, crushed, so that they came back to, into, so were brought back to life and resuscitated uh, with certain cultural history that they could draw upon. Third, you just said we're going to make it a model. I don't think we know how to do that, particularly in, in societies that are not developed and do not have a, a democratic or even uh, congenial uh, history to, re to rely upon. The whole problem comes down to the phrase nation building, mm -hmm. which I now think is as uh, much of an oxymoron as the phrase orchid building. Orchids aren't built. They grow. They're organic things, and so are nations. Hmm. We may get to come back to some of this because I think there's a lot of interesting things that that I'd like to explore with you. But I, but I, but I, you call the book the the conservative sensibility. You don't call it the conservative ideology. You don't call it conservative policies. I know you explain in the book, but I think a listener who hasn't yet read the book, they all should absolutely. I find that every, every page is fascinating. I learn I've learned so much from reading this. Talk about what you mean by the conservative sensibility. It's a a sensibility is a is a way of perceiving the world, the way of experiencing change and history and the flux of things. Uh, short story. Someone has said that the story of the Bible in one sentence is God created man and woman and promptly lost control of events. <laughs> now, the conservative sensibility says, good, we like that. We like lack of control. We like the spontaneous order of an unplanned society. That's what I mean by a certain sensibility finds this congenial. Other sensibilities don't. But it's very much sensibility is not is less than more than an attitude, but less than an agenda. And a sensibility is something that goes to your character and your personality. You can't change it very easily. You either have it or you don't. So is there also a, a liberal, a progressive, a leftist sensibility? Definitely. The progressive sensibility says uh, we don't like unplanned things because, A, we know how to plan, and B, we're going to be the planners. And they really want a top-down, uh, organized, orchestrated society, which requires unlimited government and unlimited confidence in the ability of unlimited government to achieve its ends, all of which I think is refuted by every page of modern history. 
and it's refuted by every page of modern history, yet would you say that in America today there are more people with a conservative sensibility than a progressive sensibility? Yes. You think there are more I do people think like there, that? I do think there are, and I think uh, in the democratic – ongoing Democratic presidential scramble, the Democrats are learning this because they're learning that uh, the more explicit you get with the Bernie Sanders, uh, Elizabeth Warren kind of high-octane, 110-proof progressivism, the more people flinch. There is on the right a sort of – I don't know how to characterize this. Look, in a, in a recent column of yours, you challenge Senator Josh Hawley. Right, he's a Republican. He's a conservative. I think he's a rising star, from what I can tell. Um, yet, I, some might say he sounds like a man of the left. And you quote him as saying, "It is that it is unjust that the global economy works for so few." That seems like an odd thing for a conservative, or frankly, anybody familiar with the data, uh, to say. He also, and I'll let you comment on that. He uses the term market worship. Market worship, that sounds like something I, I got to say out of Pravda or Asvestia. Or Elizabeth Warren. Or, or Elizabeth Warren, Bernie yeah. Sanders, yes. If you dislike markets, you dislike the spontaneous cooperation of freely consenting adults. Mm -hmm. That's what markets are. Mr. Hawley and some others of his rather new persuasion say – Globalized capitalism works for the few. My goodness, there has never been anything like what Deidre McCloskey calls the great enrichment that we've just experienced. Economic growth from Neolithic man until the late 18th century was essentially flat. Mm -hmm. And then it goes essentially straight up with the coming of capitalism. In the last 30 years, this system that Mr. Hawley says works for so few has taken at least Two billion people, world globally wide, out of poverty. That's working for so few. I, I don't know what would count as working for many. Okay, so you've got pretty much. Maybe you'll make give me exceptions. Pretty much all the Democratic candidates who don't believe who who share that view of the of the of the market. You've got a rising star of conservatism who seems to share that view of the market. A little that's a little, that is that is troubling, and then you have. The president of the United States. Now, you, uh, president of the United States, Donald Trump. I didn't. I must say, I didn't understand. I didn't think he was going to be a, a conservative. I didn't think he was a conservative based on his career and what I'd heard of him. Uh, and I understand your reaction to him, and I, mine was not far from it. But I guess my my question here is: is it more? Is it more over the past three years a matter of style or substance? When I look at Donald Trump now, I think of what. Uh, the remark Mark Twain is attributed to have said about Wagner's music, it's better than it sounds. I mean, which of the policies he's implemented over these past three years do you object to? For example, he's improved the economy in, by making it more market, not least for those in the bottom of the ladder. We have two new Supreme Court judges who are originalists and dozens of others who are certainly conservatives. U.S. is no longer sending cash to Iran's jihadist leaders. He's recognized, President Trump has, that the Republic of China uh, views us with predatory eyes. He is trying to do something about North Korea. Um, I don't know that he'll succeed, but nobody else certainly has over the past uh, 25 years. And he's insisting the European allies begin to contribute to their collect to the collective security, which they thought they didn't really have to do was kind of our job. And actually they have. 
those policies, you approve of all those policies, wouldn't you? No, not all of them, but a, a fair number of them. The things I approve of are things that any Republican president would have done. Uh, conservative judges vetted by the Federalist Society. Deregulation. You know, it's hard to prevent the American people from creating wealth. Get out of their way and they'll <laughs> do it. And to his credit, Mr. Trump is is helping the government get a bit out of the way. Uh, I, I can't unpack all the things you just mentioned, but in, in North Korea, I don't think announcing that you've fallen in love with the most odious dictator on the planet is pr productive. And indeed, it hasn't produced anything with regard to North Korea, so far as I can tell. There's, the, the idea that uh, you're going to have a denuclearized Korean peninsula is preposterous. Leaving that aside, you said, is it style? Yes, it is style in no small measure. One of the things that I have learned from uh, the hard tutoring given by Donald Trump is that what some people might dismiss as a merely aesthetic concern, that is the coarseness, the constant lying, the bullying, the name-calling, uh, aesthetics matter in a democracy. They matter almost more than substance at times. You cannot unring a bell and you can't unsay the things that he has said day after day, lie after lie, abuse after abuse. Take just one example. Uh, President Trump was overseas when you'd think he'd be really minding your manners if he had any. He was overseas when he approvingly quoted the dictator of North Korea describing a former vice president of the United States, Mr. Biden, as an, a low IQ idiot. Now, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, you can't just say, well, that's style, not substance. The style affects substance at the end of the day. And you cannot have a democracy in which people talk like this and maintain the, the elementary civilities that democracy presupposes. So you surely don't want him to be reelected. De uh, definitely it, not. Who among the Democrats, I'm curious to know at this point, I understand when things are volatile, but who do you look at and say, well, that would that, that's somebody who I, I I would entrust for four years with the uh, with the, with this democracy? Biden, Klobuchar, Bennett, Delaney, uh, uh, Michael Bloomberg. There, there are a bunch of them who'd be perfectly all right. Now, I, I've, Mr. Trump has cured me of presidential fastidiousness. Uh, I mean, <laughs> bring them all on. Uh, I, I I do think that. Uh, Bernie Sanders, as far as I can tell, probably resents the way the Cold War ended. <laughs> a little too much enthusiastic yeah. about yeah. the Soviet Union where he chose to spend his honeymoon. Mm -hmm. uh, Elizabeth Warren would be less harmful than she thinks because there's absolutely no way Congress is going to pass any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And very likely the linchpin of her entire Baroque edifice of programs is a wealth tax, which very well might be unconstitutional. So she has no way to pay for any of this. So she, in a way, doesn't worry me as much. But those two would uh, would be really regrettable. I want to go back to something you said, we, that we are not going to succeed in denuclearizing the Korean Peninsula. Um, the, Kim Jong-un has nuclear weapons because, again, one president after another has failed, starting with, uh, I guess, with President Clinton, he had an, an agreement. He said, we got this solved. It wasn't solved at all. They took our bribes and went on. He's developing missiles to deliver them. I, I'm guessing, you tell me, that you also believe that we cannot stop uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran from getting 
nuclear weapons and the ability to deliver them. What kind of a if this if if I'm right on that, talk about what that means if we're going to have one nation that says death to America with nuclear weapons and the means to deliver them, um, and another nation that's run by a guy who. I'm not sure he, he he is rational in the way we 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 mean it. He'll have who also can use nuclear weapons and target Los Angeles, New York, or Washington D.C. if he so chooses, if he gets into the mood. Here's what I believe about nuclear proliferation: A, it's among the most pressing problems, not just of our day, but that mankind has ever faced. B, Jack Kennedy, running for president in 1960, said by the middle of the 1970s. He expected there might be as many as 25 nuclear powers. There aren't. Uh, the nonproliferation regime has worked. However, the Soviet Union, admittedly with the help of uh, spies from the United States, became a nuclear power a few years after we did, when the Soviet Union was a prostrate nation, uh, still on its back from uh, having made the most sacrifices to win the Second World War. China was a peasant society when it required nuclear weapons. It had, I think, a, a per capita income of about $80 a year in the 1960s when it became a nuclear power. Pakistan had a per capita income in the 1970s of about $480 a year when it became a nuclear power. The basic nuclear technology, that's how to do it, which can be taught by any decent physics department at an American university, uh, it goes back to the 1940s. Ballistic missile technology, although with many refinements and all the rest, that comes from the 1950s, really. What I am saying is that any nation that really wants it is going to get it. Now, we can try and change the incentives, try and make them not want it. But there are some regimes, Iran's is one and North Korean's is another, that seem impervious to fiddling the incentives and changing their minds. Okay, now that means we've got a threat that is metastasizing out yes. there. What the question is, what do we do about it? Deterrence. I'm not I sure. Can not. you deter Kim Jong Un again? I'm not sure. Can you deter a regime He's, as in Iran, which says, and I'm going to quote Ayatollah Khomeini, "Patriotism is paganism. If Iran has to burn, let it burn, so long as Islam conquers the world." I'm and paraphrasing, Chairman, but not and far. Chairman Mao said, "If we had a nuclear weapon, a nuclear war, and China lost 300 million people, we'd still have a lot of people." We've heard this stuff before. Uh, Kim Jong Un is an odious person, but he's crazy like a fox. Look, he, he runs the most ramshackle, tin-pot country imaginable, and the whole world's paying attention to him. That's not the behavior of a, of a, of a stupid person uh, or necessarily an, an irrational person. So, I, I, A, you, you rightly raised the question, can you be sure we can deter them? The answer is no. But I, I, everything else is – other other option is worse. If you were advising a president that you found more uh, forkable, more compatible uh, right now, uh, uh, in terms of the future, would you say concentrate on China? That's the long-term threat. Would you say we need to do something about um, uh, uh, about 
terrorism and about al-Qaeda, but also about the Islamic Republic of Iran. What would you tell them our, our force, uh, what we should, be, we should be organizing to do about these various national security threats that we face? Well, they're all different. They're somewhat related, but they're not all related. The number one one is to try to manage the rise of China more successfully than we managed the rise of Germany at the turn of the 20th century in trying to integrate it peacefully into the world system of nations. Didn't work. Hideous costs. And we'd like to do this better with China, which is going to require a, a mixture of uh, carrots and sticks. Uh, North Korea, is, it's got, got to be containment. We have to hope for ways that there will be internal restiveness and regime change, perhaps, particularly in Iran. Iran is an ancient culture with a very young population. Demographically, it's a very young nation. And those people living in an age when even democracy, even to the most authoritarian regimes cannot impose intellectual autarky, cell phones, the internet, all the rest. The world is much more porous than it was, and I do not believe that any regime is forever, and least of all, the Islamic Republic's regime. The previous administration, the Obama administration, I would argue, I think you'd agree with me, attempted to appease the Islamic Republic of Iran, said, look, I'll, Obama said, I'll give you respect. I will give you wealth, maybe $150 billion. And I won't give rhetorical support to the demonstrators in the uh, street. That's right. I won't say they have a right to demonstrate or to, to be free or anything. I will not do any of that. And I will um, say that uh, – well, another part of appeasement is to say you'll need – you. I think you, I think you have a right to share the region, meaning to some hegemony um, in the Middle East never went quite sure how much. It was kind of the idea of if I say you can have some of the Middle East, that'll satisfy you. Again, I don't like the comparison, but it's a little bit like Munich saying, listen, if, if, if Hitler wants Czechoslovakia, give him Czechoslovakia. That doesn't mean he's going to take Poland. That doesn't mean he's going to take Bulgaria. Yes, it did actually because you're wetting his appetite. You're not sating his appetite, right? So you, I would think you would disagree with what the previous administration was doing in terms of attempting appeasement of this regime. The current administration has been squeezing economically the, regi the regime. Now, th there's an obvious question in there that you'll respond to, but there's a less obvious question. That is this. Until very recently, uh, most conservatives and most liberals, I think, believed that wealth and, and, and economic growth were moderating forces. That when a nation got a little bit richer, you get a middle class, they demand power, the people in power are going to give it to them. It's all going to work out fine. That was Nixon goes to China. We've helped China develop hugely through our trade with China. And it, it, China has not liberated, on, uh, has not moderated quite the Far contrary. from moderating, yes. It, it is using the dark arts of the digital technology to give us uh, totalitarianism on steroids. Right. A while surveillance state. While stealing our intellectual property to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars a year for which they have paid absolutely no price one administration Beginning after another. Beginning with Nixon's visit to China in 1972, under Republicans and Democrats alike, the United States and all other Western nations as well, made a wager on China. And it's just as you described which was that if you import capitalism and market forces, you will have to also import a judiciary to 
arbitrate contract disputes and banking systems and a flow of information and all this would be a solvent of tyranny. And slowly the regime would would uh, liberalize. Someone said what we have is, is, is the Starbucks theory of democracy. That is, give the Chinese people a choice of 25 kinds of coffee. They're going to want two kinds of politics, two political parties. Hasn't worked. You're quite right. We made a wager. We lost the wager. And we really came to terms with that in 2019 with a, a large tutorial administered by the good people of Hong Kong who said, look, we're right next door and we know what the problem is and we know how implacable our, our foe is here. Uh, that has washed over Taiwan. Uh, it's sort of got the attention of everyone but the National Basketball Association. People said, well, no, we're going to have to change our approach to China. Well, and a lot of businesses who are very happy to use something verging on slave labor yep. over there to have products that are very inexpensive. To yep. Does the, oh, so, so having established that, the policy alteration that would be suggested is we – not that we think in terms of, oh, we're imposing sanctions, but rather maybe we shouldn't be doing business with with those countries that see us as their enemies. Maybe we should be doing nothing to enrich those countries that we see as despotic. Maybe we simply, sh we simply should let them go on their own, let Russia deal with uh, North Korea commercially, let them deal with China, but we should, we should not. And people in Britain have talked about – expanding uh, the Anglophone nations and, and their commerce and trade and, 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 and having that more. But maybe what we should do is it should be normal that we – of course we have sanctions on these countries because we don't want to do businesses business with oppressive slave states. Let's, let's uh, distinguish first Russia from China. Russia is a declining nation. It is. Russia is, it is. Uh, has a demographic collapse underway. Uh, the, the, name a consumer good besides caviar and vodka you'd buy from the Soviet Union. We're not doing much commerce with Russia that's right. anyhow. It's, it's so an, that's actually – you're right. It, it doesn't matter. We, no, we never did. It's one cut above a hunter-gatherer economy. It's an extraction <laughs> industry extracting fish eggs from sturgeon and oil and no. gas and minerals and that's it. Right. Um, they don't uh, – we, we have to watch them and contain them and push yeah, back and on. But they're They're, they're the mischievous past. but they're that's all right. China is a great nation, a great culture. It's a quarter of the world's population, something like that. Uh, soon to be eclipsed in that department by India and probably eclipsed in others by India. But China is here to stay and it's, it's a formidable adversary and it's going to remain an adversary. I don't use the word enemy. Uh, and the idea that we can or even should want to completely try and cut China off from the supply chains of the world that are now so complicated is is fanciful to me. No, we have to understand that uh, if if we do weave them into the the world's supply chains as they now are, um, they are dependent as we all are on world flows of capital and world flows of demand and all the rest. And that is somewhat an inhibiting effect. I'm not, I'm not just rephrasing the old wager that this will tranquilize China and civilize it. It won't, but it will inhibit it. The United Nations, um, a failed organization on which we should give up or, or should we continue to pay for it? Well, again, we have no choice. It just, it's, it's here to stay. 
and we pay uh, far more than our fair share of its bills, and it is far more than than it needs to be inefficient and wasteful and and all the rest. It has its uses. It had its use during the Korean War. It's had its use in this in the um, uh, human rights movement. Uh, when we have the right kind of person there with the right kind of issues, I'm thinking of Pat Moynihan at the time when when Zionism Absolutely. as racism came up. I mean, that was one of the great moments in American diplomatic history. Mm-hmm. So uh, we can make use of it. No, Pat Moynihan did a great job. I think Gene Kirkpatrick did. I think Nikki Haley did. I think John Bolton did. I think those were the best yep. ambassadors there, and then they used it to good purposes. Other than that, I don't think that, but that we have used it to any yeah. useful purposes. It's been a waste of money. Huge argument these days over nationalism, whether it's virtuous or whether it's not. And uh, connected to that is the argument over globalism. And I'm when I want to make sure I'm clear here, I think you understand this, others don't. There's a difference between globalism as a philosophy, transnational governance and all that, getting actually the, the goal of making the UN some kind of world government over time. There are those who are very much in favor of that. And globalization, which is a process that happens on its own and has nothing to do with it. So what is your sense of nationalism and your sense of globalism, which is opposed to nationalism? Nationalisms can be virulent. They can be aggressive, they can be exclusive, they can be xenophobic. They need not be any of those things. I think most Americans are nationalists in that they say, love our nation. Now, that's patriotism. The nationalism comes in when you say, we're, we're kind of better than a lot of others. Well, I'm sorry when you say we are founded on self-evident truths. When you have a national creed, as America does, that is inherently universalistic, uh, of course you're saying we've made certain discoveries and affirmations that other people should emulate because they're better than other approaches to this. You know, Margaret Thatcher said, European nations were made by history. The United States was made by philosophy. Mm-hmm. And our philosophy is right, I think. And uh, so you, you can have a benign, non aggressive, non-obnoxious nationalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you better because every nation's going to be, the Danes, I'm sure, have have their own nationalism. I've just spent two weeks in Spain, which is a nation riven by some secessionists and uh, all kinds of cultural tensions. But uh, they're saying right now, sort of prompted by Catalonia, saying, no, Spain's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Spain mm-hmm. is a nation. Spain has its history and a culture, and it's all worth preserving. This, in a way, goes back to something you were saying before. But I want to. But you, you, it, your argument is nuanced, so I want to make sure we, we 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 don't skimp on this. You're opposed to nation building. I agree with you. I don't think. I think we want. I think we should support I'm, Democrats. Look, I wouldn't say. See, I wouldn't say I'm okay. opposed to lobsters growing on trees. I wish they did. I yeah. have a lobster tree in my backyard, but it doesn't happen. And that's what I'm saying about. Nation building. I'm opposed to attempting nation building because we don't know how to do it. But here's also what you said, which I think may surprise people, that U.S. foreign policy should, and now I'm quoting, create incentives for the slow, incremental modification of certain national characters to bring them more into conformity with the universalism of the American creed. Pressure can come from the United States by the constant support, rhetorical, financial, diplomatic, of people in those countries who are asserting natural rights that have been denied recognition. 
You're not, I mean, that's not an isolationist point of view. No, I'm just, I'm you just expressed not, there. Certainly not an isolationist. What I was saying just a moment ago really means that Americans with a, a universal creed, uh, a Jeffersonian Enlightenment philosophy, can't be isolationist because we are saying that the rights that we have affirmed and in some ways discovered are universal. There are, as Lincoln said in one of his famous letters, um, uh, good for all men in all places. Now, not at all times. It takes, again, uh, work. An, an argument I've had with, say, Elliot Abrams, who you know and, and I know, is the following. He is, he is very much somebody who is for trying to export democracy, I would say. And I've said, Elliot, we should be more modest. There are certain freedoms we should insist upon in other lands. If you want to be our friend, you have to allow certain liberties. But I don't think we have to go beyond that because that's a bridge too far. And he said, no, Cliff, we, we, we can't look at it that way. It's not just freedom. It's freedom and democracy. Do you agree with me? Do you agree with Elliot? Or? I agree with uh, Ronald Reagan's speech at Westminster, which means I agree largely with you. What Reagan said was free press, free trade unions, uh, things like that uh, are conducive to uh, creating the social soil in which this plant democracy can grow and flourish. So you, can, you, you don't have to do it all at once. Uh, among the best dollars the United States government spends, it spends on the endowment for, National Endowment for Democracy, which works around the world doing things like this. You say you were recently in Spain. There are forces centripetal and centrifugal in that country. Certainly, in a certain way, the existence of the European Union may make it easier for Catalonia to say, we can break off from Spain because so many decisions will be made in Brussels. We don't really need to worry about it. So we can, or the same may be said of Scotland, for example. Talk a little bit about that and about the EU and, and throw in Brexit while I'm asking you because I'm sure you have comments on all that. Well, the Catalonians had an illegal and considering the number of people abstained, ambiguous uh, referendum on Catalonian independence. They didn't get a majority, and there was no, zero, no evidence that the European Union was going to say, okay, well, we'll now represent you because the, the Belgians know that the Wallonians are going to uh, uh, dissent, and all kinds of nations could, could fragment. Uh, Scotland, I think, uh, uh, wants to stay in the European Union, whether or not it wants it so much that it wants to shatter the United Kingdom, where it's been since, what, 1707? I doubt. Bavaria, Veneto, Alaska a few years ago, there some guys started to get a secessionist movement. These things come and go. There's now Wexit in the western part of Canada, where they're unhappy with the eastern part of Canada. This is the nature of nations and, and life. But uh, the European Union... I think uh, I used to worry that it was going to produce a kind of cultural and political homogenation and a bland, watery soup of, of politics. Turns out nations are much more resilient and, and uh, intractable things, and that's a good thing. I don't think uh, because they're in the European Union, the Danes are any less Danish and the French any less French. My travels around Europe have convinced me that the future of Europe 
is secure because young people like it, and they like it because of the freedom of travel. They pick up, they say, I'm bored this week, and I'm going to Cyprus. And they go, and it's just wonderful, and, and they're not going to sacrifice that. That's why voters under age 43 voted overwhelmingly to stay in, uh, in, in the Brexit referendum, to stay in the European Union. Some might argue that Europe is endangered, A, by demographics, uh, a falling birth rate, yes. and B, by immigration, importing large numbers of people from other cultures who may not become Europeanized. Immigration is the greatest threat to social cohesion in Europe perhaps ever. What would you do about immigration in Europe or more importantly for us in the United States? Well, you're, there are two different things. Europe, it seems to me, which has less experience with immigration than we've had, and Europe, which does not think of itself as a land of immigrants. Uh, Europe has to be careful to, to moderate the influx of people who are culturally other, different. The United States has an enormous, staggering record of success in assimilating immigrants who know why they want to come to the United States. They know, know the virtues of being an American a lot better than a lot of Americans do. We have people clamoring to get into this country and go to work. And we also have six million unfilled jobs. And we also have an, an aging workforce with the baby boomers re retiring at 10,000 a day. We need immigrants as much as the immigrants need us. We need them to replenish the workforce and to remind us by their example of, of just how good we have it here. Should the southern border, for example, uh, be open or no, should it be? No. Should we? Should be? Should do we have a right to choose which immigrants we want? Who we are, have who, a duty to choose which immigrants we want. We want to be. We want an immigration policy that says we're not doing anyone a favor if we admit them to this country and they can't cope. Mm -hmm. But we're not doing ourselves a favor if we don't admit the enormous number of talented people uh, who who bring social capital to this country that we can use. There's a few more questions I definitely want to get in, even if we go a little long. One, you write humanity's oldest document is about war. What does that tell us? What that should that tell those who are saying we can't have – we mean to end the endless wars, the forever wars. We're not – it seems to me that I, I can't think of an example of where we simply ended a war. Wars, wars are lost. Wars are won. Losing a war can be absolutely destructive to a society or a society can limp on for a while, and maybe even rejuvenate. But war is the natural state of mankind, isn't it? Peace is something you achieve only in unusual circumstances like when you have a Pax Romana, a Pax Britannica, a Pax Americana. War is natural in the sense that the seeds of it are sown in the nature of man. On the other hand, all wars end. One thing they have in common. They all end. Some end creatively, some end destructively, some end with seeds of the next war in them, but they all end. Uh, and we have just, as Ronald Reagan used to say, the way to prevent war uh, is to be ready for it. Uh, and to frighten your enemies and deter your enemies. You're going to still have some wars, but um, understand that. Another subject I wanted to touch on is populism. People talk a lot about it. In a way, if if you have a democratic society, certain things are – certain people are popular. Should we be talking – I mean, can you be pro-democracy and anti-populism? No, you, but uh, populism can give you a degenerate form of democracy. 
Uh, I'm a Madisonian. Madison said majorities should rule, and whether they should or not, they're going to rule. Therefore, he said, care must be taken to see that they are sound, reasonable, temperate majorities. To which end, he said, majorities should be filtered and refined by having the majority opinion put through representative institutions. In a republic, the essential doctrine of which is representation, the people do not make decisions. They decide who will make decisions. Uh, so populism, which in its anti-Madisonian essence says we should have plebiscitory government, that is, popular opinion expressed directly to and through a strong leader, someone who might, for example, say, only I can fix it. Mm. Uh, as uh, Mr. Trump said to the Republican nominating convention. Uh, th that is not the Madisonian, not the American way. But Madison wanted, and he used a wonderful phrase, and want mitigated democracy. Mm -hmm. That's what we, what we should want. And, and there are those on the left as well who are saying, no, we don't want mitigated democracy. They don't use that phrase. We should have an electoral college that's part of the mitigation of democracy. Is it not? Um, they want, you know, if, if a majority of Americans, we don't, we shouldn't have what we have now, which is 50 uh, presidential elections in 50 states. We should have one and one election and whatever the majority rules, this idea of, winning the electoral vote, not the popular vote, but that's a more small d democratic, less mitigated form of democracy than the Republican form of democracy that you describe. And I think that Franklin and others had in, had in mind, right? You, you elect somebody, you know, who's local and he elects somebody. We didn't normal initially, we didn't elect senators by, by popular vote. We still shouldn't. In my still judgment, shouldn't. That's, yeah. that's a long story. <laughs> <laughs> The uh, the elimination, or let me not be coy, the uh, targeted killing of uh, Qasem Soleimani, um, you would say, was that A, was it justified, B, was it strategic? I'm not, I can't answer either of those. To, to say that it's justified, uh, we'd have to know what was imminent. Uh, we didn't just get him in our crosshairs that day. He'd obviously been in our crosshairs for a long time. Something changed that made us do it. And frankly, there, there are probably a number of very bad people in the world who said, watched that and said, hmm, I wonder how long I've been in their crosshairs. And so they're nervous, and a nervous terrorist is a good thing, looking over his shoulder. And, and why, why should imminence be the criteria? It seems to me he was because, responsible for the hundreds of American deaths, hundreds of thousands of other deaths. He led the leading terrorist organization in America. He was traveling illegally. We just had our embassy attacked. We just had an American killed. We believed, imminent or not, that presumed that he was not coming to Baghdad for dinner and a movie. He was going to be plotting against us there. Why not say... I don't know what imminent means, it, whether he had a gun in his pocket. I don't know whether he was about to draw it. I don't think we should wait. Well, if, if you, once you untether assassination, that's what this was, assassination from uh, preemption of something imminent, you then slide into not just preemptive military action, but preventive military action. And then you slide from there to anything that makes America safer is legitimate. We killed Osama bin Laden. There was nothing imminent about him at that at the point we did. 
Now, we, that was retaliation. That was retaliation. And you, and you can say that the, the, the Iranian general was retaliated against. But I'm telling you, when, when you legitimize, increasingly legitimize assassination as a tool of international relations, you are in dangerous waters. Anwar al-Awlaki, droned by President Obama, an American citizen, but believed to be a member of al-Qaeda, that would fall into the same category? He would, because he was considered, uh, rightly, as an enemy combatant in a battlefield without borders. Uh, the Iranian general is a little different because he was a state actor. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm, I could go on for hours with you, and that wouldn't be fair, but a last question. You dedicate this book to Barry Goldwater. I fear younger uh, <laughs> listeners, our producer Danielle may not know a lot about Barry Goldwater. Uh, talk a little bit about him, but in particular, he ran against Lyndon Johnson, of course, and the 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 the, the iconic political ad against him, which you remember, called the Daisy ad, but you may not remember Danielle. But he showed a little girl in a meadow. She's picking flowers. She's counting the petals as she pulls them off. Suddenly, it's not counting petals. It's a countdown to a launch of a nuclear weapon. And we see her eye, and it's a huge blast, and then it's a mushroom cloud. And the ad was meant to say, Goldwater, you cannot trust him, Goldwater. He's a, he's a warmonger. And in fact, a voiceover says, these are the stakes. We must love each other, or we must die we were supposed to love the Soviet communists at that point, yeah, but well, it won. I mean, it was a, an effective ad. Goldwater went down. Whether Lyndon Johnson knew it or not, he was quoting a W.H. Auden poem, We Must Love One Another or Die. Well, we're going to die anyway, so that's not the point. <laughs> um, look, I didn't even think the, the Daisy ad was that bad. I thought it was fair commentary. I disagreed, and I voted for Goldwater. Uh, Barry Goldwater uh, – was one of the creative losers in American history. He lost the election but won the future. I've often said that Goldwater didn't lose in 1964. It just took 16 years to count the votes. And uh, Reagan, no no Goldwater, no Reagan, because Goldwater changed the Republican Party and made it receptive to people like Ronald Reagan. I thought Barry Goldwater gave, for whom, again, I cast my first presidential vote, gave a kind of weight and dignity to politics by saying this is not just about distributing the spoils to various claimant factions. It is about certain principles, and we want to get back to them. George Will, talking to you like reading your book is fascinating and edifying, and I'm thrilled to have done both. Uh, I, again, recommend to any listeners to get The Conservative Sensibility, put it by your bedstand and read just, you know, a chapter a night for the next, what is it, month or so? How many chapters (laughs) are there? A lot. They're they're all fascinating. Whether you agree with everything or not, you'll learn a huge amount. I I say that to everybody. So thank you for being here so much. And thank you for being with us as well here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas. Policy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May. You've been listening to Foreign Policy.